Our job as parents is to help our children feel unconditionally loved so their self-esteem doesn't rest on the splendor of their accomplishments. That's a quote from Dr. Sunya Luther, today's guest on the newly renamed Curiosity Files podcast. I'm Shell, and I'm the assistant head of school at the Lovett School in Atlanta. I'm joined by Meredith Cole, Lovett's head of school. Meredith and I started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that fed our core values. In the ensuing weeks, we have included friends from other schools. So in addition to Dr. Luther, we have two additional hosts with us today. Hi, I'm Kate Turnbull. I'm the Director of Professional Learning at Metairie Park Country Day School in Metairie, Louisiana. Hello, my name is Derek Krein. I'm the Dean of Professional and Programmatic Growth and Development at Tabor Academy. I love that today I get to welcome Dr. Sunya Luther to our show. Dr. Luther is Professor Emerita at Columbia University, but before that, she taught at Yale University and Arizona State University. She's currently the Chief Research Officer at Authentic Connections, an organization committed to using science to foster resilience. Her work there maximizes individuals' personal well-being and resilient adaptation in their families, communities, and work settings. Note that I said maximizing individuals' personal well-being, and not just students, because Dr. Luther has invested significant time, energy, and research into how to care for the caregivers in the lives of children. Teachers are at high risk for burnout because of the way they invest themselves in the lives of students, because of their belief in the transformative power of education. Her work highlights areas where a school can incorporate support-based interventions within its institutional culture, as it is essential for teachers to have ongoing access to supportive relationships in everyday life settings. Dr. Luther's research also involves vulnerability and resilience among various populations, including youth in poverty, children and families affected by mental illness, but also among teens in high-achieving schools who reflect high rates of symptoms relative to national norms. She has spoken in independent schools across the country, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic. She is a frequent contributor to Psychology Today, and her list of publications in academic journals is both exhaustive and influential. And if she were a superhero to join the Avengers, I would name her the Matrix. Because as you get to know Dr. Luther's research, you realize that her reliance on data is an essential piece of her work. So she loves those numbers and the way those spreadsheets come alive and begin to tell one piece of the story. But that Matrix pulls people together and at the heart of her work is the way that we lean on one another and help to ensure that children have people to lean on so that they can find that resilience in their own lives. Dr. Luther, we are so glad you are here. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, so we find ourselves coming to you at a really difficult time, a difficult time in our country, the city of Atlanta having a very difficult time 
difficult time for us as faculty members. And your work has felt even more compelling to me in, in light of many of the challenges that we're facing, not just with coronavirus, but looking at the, the injustices that we have seen in the world around us. And so your, your work in resilience feels very compelling to me right now as we attempt to find our, our way out of, out of some really dark times. What are some things that you are, you're seeing just in the water that you're swimming in connected to resilience and the, the injustice that we're watching on the news? Well, good, Michelle, first of all, thank you for having me. And let me start by saying, just listening to you talk about the work, I had tears in my eyes. I just have to say, we are all hurting so much right now. Um, and just for whoever's listening to us, uh, Shell asked me before we got on the call, she said, you must be exhausted. I said, I am, but I have to unexhaust myself somehow, right? Because we all do need to come together. And uh, the only way we're going to get through this is by acknowledging our respective hurts when we are hurting. Uh, that sets an example for those around us to be able to do the same, give some sort of permission to do that. And with, as you know, I keep saying resilience rests fundamentally on relationships. That's how we're going to get through this. Very deliberately paying attention to authentic, close, supportive, loving relationships. My students, our faculty, our school heads, our administrators, our parents. It, it is a challenging time. And so I'm, it's nice that we can be together to talk. As I've been learning more and more about you and looking at your work, your work feels to me a little bit like a Rube Goldberg progression. And so, you know, when you push the domino, what, what happens next? And I've looked at a progression really of your research from working with students in poverty to looking at the factors in high achieving schools to, the work of those who are caring for those students. And so looking at the resilience of students, in my mind, has led to that domino, looking at the resilience of the caregivers that are next to them. Will you just, will you tell us a little bit of your story? Uh, sure, I, I, I can start with, uh, as you said, my doctoral dissertation was with inner city kids, adolescents, and looking at what helps them do well in spite of serious uh, hardships in their lives. and. Uh, from there, I mean, the, I had all kinds of findings, but that led to all this work with kids in high achieving schools uh, as a comparison group, essentially. And uh, the first study of this comparative study, we found that the kids in the high achieving school were actually doing more poorly than the inner city kids, especially on substance use. So that was, I think, 1998 was the first publication on that. And that's just led to this whole series of studies on kids and, and the whole programmatic work on high achieving. Uh, kids. But the second part, Shell, was the, the focus on caregivers. And, and to be honest, it wasn't until I was a mom myself that it became clear to me how hard this job is. And, you know, people say, if only the parents do this, and if only the parents do that, kids will be fine. Yeah, of course, we know that. It comes back to the parents. But I, I wrote this paper, who mothers mommy? What about the parents? How do we do this? How do we even do putting out this love and support? And limit setting and equanimity of spirit and cheerleader and you know everything for a period of weeks months years decades day in and day out how does a human being do this 
So that's what got me interested. You know, the all roads lead back to mom, everybody's happiness, whoever the primary caregiver is. And most cases, most part of the world, it happens to be mom, could be dad. But bottom line is everything rest comes back here, right? So who's taking care of this person? That became my preoccupation. That's what led to that first study on some 2,500 moms that led to that paper, Who Mothers Mommy? And uh, interventions, of the several, not two different interventions, one for low-income moms with serious mental illness and one for moms like us, um, professional moms in high-stress settings. Um, the end of the story, Shell, is that the National Academies of Science, uh, Engineering and Medicine, last year put out this big report called Vibrant and Healthy Kids, and it's about maximizing equity and resilience and so on. And there, there are two findings I'm very, very gratified and delighted to say. One is, first thing they say is, you want kids to be resilient, make sure their caregivers are resilient. And that includes not just the parents or the primary caregivers, but also grandparents, teachers, counselors, any significant adults in their lives, make sure they're doing well, because that's where the ongoing daily love and support is going to come from. So it's out there in the National Academies of Sciences, the number one thing to pay attention to for resilience. And the second thing is, is they have also now included us high achieving schools as a quote at risk group. It's official now. Um, you asked me why do why am I happy about that? Because over time there's been so much skepticism. Really, you're gonna study those kids with all they have? And there's almost like an inverse snobbish, snobbishness, like why would you why would you study them? And it's become clear now that the findings that we had back in 1998 or early 2000 have only been replicated again and again, have only got worse with pressures over time. So just to have big scientific acknowledgement that this is a group of kids that we cannot ignore anymore. They have their own set, sets of stresses and pressures that we need to pay attention to in a systematic way as developmental scientists. So. Um, that, to me, that's very, very gratifying, uh, 2019, 30 years later. Wow. I know one of the things that your research has found in that work with high-achieving kids is this excessive pressure to excel, and that that has been really negatively impacting their well-being. And I think that you have a list of attendees who have experienced that firsthand, given some of the toxic narratives that are connected to the college, the college race, and some of those other pieces. Will you talk a little bit about that excessive pressure to excel and what what kinds of things kids are experiencing? Yeah, so sure. So this is why we do science. This is why we do research. You have an idea, so you stumble upon this finding, which is 1998. And my first speculation was because I was surprised, frankly, by the finding. So, what is this about? And my first speculation was about parents, of course, kids who are not close to their parents, but that was true, uh, and lack of supervision. Over time, it became clear that this is more of a systemic issue. This is not an issue that, uh, uh, it's not just about the parents, so that when people would ask me in the last five or so years, so where's this pressure coming from? I would answer back rhetorically, where's it not coming from, right? So you have parents who are well-educated and most of these schools parents are reasonably well-educated they want similar educations for their children and there's nothing wrong with that uh, the problem is that competition has got that much stiffer but we'll get into that later uh, uh, teachers educators they want the schools to be distinctive 
peers are constantly comparing themselves with each other. College admissions level, the selectivity rates or acceptance rates have gone to from 30% to 8%. So things really have got more competitive. And even something like play, where kids used to show up and play in the cul-de-sac, now you've got even that, are you going to make the travel team in the second grade? And if you mess up and you strike out, oh my God, he had a bad game today and let down the team. So everything has become so focused on, uh, show me, as you said, the splendor of your accomplishments, which is obviously something that gets kids and us into such a state of fragility. Why? Because if I don't make it, then who am I and what is my worth? And so there's the, there's the anxiety about keeping up with that. And obviously there's the depression where you feel like you're not making that enormously high mark. It was a very long answer to your question, but uh, as, as far as the expression, well, there's another part too, if, you, if I may, uh, about the expressions. Uh, so we published an article last year in the American Psychologist, which is the conceptual model, and has these pressures down there as the biggest factor. Now what's happened, you know, we study, we have this high achieving school survey, which is on schools like yours. And we had last year something like 15,000 kids whom we'd assessed. We also have about 10,000 kids that we've assessed post-COVID distance learning. And would you believe it, the rates of clinically significant depression and anxiety have gone down wow. across all schools. Yeah. All right, so this is an experiment of nature where we had, let's say eight to 10% of kids normatively in those 15,000 population as showing clinically significant depression, anxiety, now we're significantly lower. Of course, this is going to rise as time goes on and it gets old to be, but there's again, to your point about pressure, they're sleeping more, they're not running from pillar to post with a thousand activities after school. You know, some schools have moved, moved to pass fail. So there's a great deal of let up in many respects for these children and we're seeing it in their mental health. So there are lessons here for us for the future as we go back to school and think about how we're scheduling distance learning, on-campus learning, and what these children's schedules look, at, look like, and how we can use these data that we're getting uh, to inform our decisions and our schedules. I'm wondering about your, your experience and your perspective and, and research for that matter about um, how our faculty in, in, this, in, in this moment, in this era where we've shifted from on the ground to online, how do we shift our expectations of perfection. I mean, I think you talked about that, that you know, second grader on the, on the travel team. How do faculty shift their sense of perfection when we've moved to a dynamic where mostly all of us are now novice? And sort of yeah. build, building, how do we build resilience in this, in this moment, in this, where we are novice? So as Shell said, Derek, that's an excellent question. I'm a scientist. The answer to your question is get the data. Right? So what happened was the moment COVID happened and we started going to distance learning, we essentially suspended our high achieving school survey and pivoted to do this resilience survey, made one for students and one for faculty. We now have one for parents as well, with the understanding that we need to understand from the people directly, listen to the voices and hear what the needs are, what the challenges are. So, you know, in the high achieving school survey, we have indices of mental health and rule breaking, substance use and so on for the kids and also all kinds of risk and protective factors. In this new little resilience survey for faculty and students, we've also included three open-ended questions. What's going well in your school? What's of most concern for you? And how could your school be helping you better? 
as I said, for both students and faculty. Why? Because we didn't know all the questions to ask. You see, I mean, I've done this research for 30 years. I knew what to ask in the high achieving school survey because I've been following that stuff and studying it forever. But now with this shifting landscape, which first of all, there was so much upheaval just in moving to distance and week after week, the uncertainty and what are we going to do and what's going to happen, not to mention the outbreak of all the, you know, what's happening in the country with the unrest. So once again, long answer to your question. The short answer is how do we know what's best for faculty is we ask them. We do our faculty resilience survey. Nina and I did, what, three feedbacks today. It's all for free. The first one is for every school is free. We did three feedbacks. Everything that your faculty is saying, here are the places where they're thriving, here are the places where they're saying you're doing wonderfully as administrators, here are the places where they would like to see a little give, and here's where they need to give themselves a break, which is usually a little more, let me be taken care of. Let me have my, make sure I have my time to de-stress and, and so on. So don't, don't keep us in suspense. Well, I mean, what are some of the patterns that you're seeing as you're looking at those three broad categories? Is there, is there anything administrators are doing right? I would love for you to talk a little bit about any patterns you're seeing in some of those open-ended questions. Of course. Well, I'll talk about the open-ended child, but even starting with the rating scales, you know, just like we have for kids' depression and anxiety, for the faculty, we measure two things. One is burnout, emotional exhaustion at work, which we're all at risk for right now, just feeling the burden of taking care of others. So that's one. And the other is just overall stress. And here we have, again, norms based on, I think, with the faculty and basically adults at school, which includes administrators and other people, counselors and support staff. Uh, 2,000 or so people. We have norms for that too. So let's start with that. You will see where your community has, is at on burnout and stress relative to the couple of thousand people we've studied already, which in itself is good data. You will break that down by role at school, by division, upper school, lower school, and so on, administrators versus faculty. That in itself is important data to have. Then we get to the open-ended questions. And so what's going well Actually, even in terms of what would you like more of, which is why it's so good to have both sets of questions when you see a converging theme. The biggest one, I think, tends to be support and concern from administrators. That's one of the biggest, followed by, and I'll go into both of these, clarity of expectations and flexibility around that. So these tend to be the two biggest. And it, of course, it varies across schools. And when, again, fascinating when you break it down by divisions or by an upper school, lower school, and so on. There are differences. But overwhelmingly, one of the themes that comes out is, I appreciate that they check in on me, appreciate that they're attentive to my mental health and our mental health from the students and the faculty, including surveys like this. So even just having the opportunity to say and indicate what their issues are, that goes a very long way. Um, moving to the issue of flexibility, of expect flexibility and clarity of expectations. So obviously we can't all be expecting, as a professor, I can't expect my students to learn the same amount in the curriculum that they used to, right? In distance. So how are we adjusting our expectations? How are we determining as a department, this is the essence of this subject that our kids have to grasp by the end of the semester. And here are the assignments and things that we can let go by the wayside a little bit more, such as an extra literature review 
or an extra, you know, that extra credit assignment? What can we let go because these kids are struggling? It is, it is very strenuous to be sitting and looking at your computer all day. And they've lost a lot of the course code protective factors. So these are a couple of things, uh, ongoing connections people have talked about in some schools. It's a bigger problem in some schools. It's going very well. Ongoing faculty meetings, supportive meetings, uh, check-ins are informal, not just having groups to express your concerns, but also groups to just visit. And there's enormous variation. So the fact that we have norms here, we've got people who are here and we've got people over there on different indices. That's why we come back and say, I could give you some generic statements and I'm giving you some of the themes that come up most commonly, but there is considerable variation across schools and within schools, across divisions, by role, by gender, by whether or not you're taking care of children or someone else at home. So there are all these variations by ethnicity that, that, that we're looking at. And we're able to come back and tell you, well, here are the groups that are doing relatively well. Nobody's happy right now. It's a continuum between okay, and for me, continuum between okay, and sometimes unraveling, somewhere between that, right? So we're able to come back and say, generally, this is the group that's more on the okay side, and this is the group that we need to be giving extra love and attention and care to. And that is often includes the administrators, the people in charge. Will you talk a little bit about, you, the name of your organization is Authentic Connections, and that, that speaks volumes about about your work, and you've recently written an article about connection in the virtual age. We, how, how do we do that? Shall I just give you a brief recap of how we got to this, which is started off with groups actually with inner city moms who had serious mental illnesses, support groups for them. The two five-year studies funded by NIH, this is while I was still at Yale. Fast forward to when I moved to Arizona, did a, an abbreviated version of this, which is called Authentic Connections Groups and tested it out with physicians and other health providers who are moms at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Short version of that is there were significant improvements on everything from these groups that were done in the workplace, uh, including cortisol and these group, and these, these gains stayed three months after the groups finished. So then I figured, well, if this has to grow, we need to be able to do this, at least try and do this virtually. So I tried and got together, I think I ran about five groups virtually. The paper was published last year, all before COVID. Very fortuitous again. The paper was published last year, and I can send you a copy if you like, where the women, it was all women, described what they got out of the groups, why they were beneficial. And again, it's in the National Academy's report as something that's empirically validated now, and that we can and should be using to promote resilience among the caregivers who are then going to give it to the kids. Hence, authentic connections. So the, the piece you're referring to, that little, it's not so little actually anymore, the blog I wrote, it was quite long, I think, in, in psychology today, is like a, a primer, a how-to. How can you do this for yourself? You don't necessarily need Luther or any therapist or clinician or anyone to run this, perhaps to get it started, but really these things can and should be done by people within their, there's plenty of love and it's free. So what I've done is a little primer saying, here's how you start. Here are the obstacles you might feel you're running into. Here are the things that you should consider in terms of whom you bring together. Literally a list of things. And a couple of videos, PBS did a video on groups actually running, including virtual groups. A Couple of videos up there too that shows you 
here's the feeling we're trying to create in our groups. It's not about solving problems. I'm not, you shall say, say something that I, like I'm flailing. I'm not here, my job is not to tell you how to unflail. My job is to listen to you, right? And as I keep saying, that's free. That's free. And that's the healing. That's the healing when we can come together and, and, and do this kind of support for each other. And what time in our history and lifetimes has there been greater need for us to come together in these mutually supportive and loving ways, knowing that is empirically supportive and recommended by the National Academy. So there you have it. You've got the evidence. You've got the fact that you know it works. And it's in your backyard. It's in your homes. You can do this virtually. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Will you talk a little bit beyond some of those connections? You, you give some advice to schools and institutions in ways that they can begin to do some systemic work about caring for those caretakers. I mean, what, what advice would you give school leaders as you're, as you're looking at how to bring them together? Yeah, so a couple of things. Again, once again, shall I always come back to the data. It's hard to lead a ship if you don't know what really is going on within your ship. So this is why I always come back to this and what I can come back and say in your school, like the hygiene school survey, here are the pressure points among peer relationships, feelings of being uh, victimized or feelings of being discriminated against. These are the pressure points in your school. And these are the places where you're doing very well in the realm of teacher relationships, the school climate, in the realm of family. So what I come back with is tell you, here are your pressure points. Then you as a school head and administrative team get together. I normally speak to the faculty as well, often to the parents and say, as a community, we need to get together and address these issues that we now know to be most, uh, uh, most needing, needing our, our, our attention. So that's the first thing, get your data, understand. It's like saying you go to the Mayo Clinic for a diagnosis. You go and get, you don't go to CVS for a minute checkup. Get a proper diagnosis of what are you doing, knowing that our school, our children, and we are under so much pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, collaborate, spread it out, it's not all on you. That would be point number two. When I go to schools, I will sit down with, I used to be in person, I'm sure it'll be virtually now, with the leadership team and say, how can we do this together, bringing together all the stakeholders, including other people from the faculty, including parents, so that we're all on the same team and everybody feels like they have a voice here. And we've actually seen dramatic changes from one year to the next when you take this kind of approach and the administration says, we've got the data, we've got people on board, everybody's a team and there is goodwill. There we go. And the students' voices too. I'll visit with the students, hear what they have to say, pick up their, uh, their perspective one-on-one, -on -one, me one and them in a group. On, on things that they feel in their school most warrant attention. All of this comes together then. Mm. Does that make sense? A absolutely. I, I loved what you said about collaborate, spread it out. What are the ways that we can share that? I spent um, the first week after we were out of school really feeling like I needed to reinvent education as we knew it before the following Monday and looking at a group of really capable educators who are ready to dive in and link arms to do that work in service to students has meant a tremendous amount to me. So that was, that was very compelling. Will you share a little bit about the trends that you saw from this, the student resiliency surveys? Well, the first trend we saw was this big jump drop down. 
and overall significant levels of uh, uh, clinically significant depression and anxiety. So that was the first thing. The second thing I'm afraid is troubling, troubling in the sense worrisome. You know, when we look at predictors of well-being, and we have 12 or 15, and our job is to say within each community and across communities, what are the three most important? I won't give you a list of 15 things. You'll have to tell you what the three most important is. In every single school, and this will come as no surprise to you, feeling stresses around your relationship with parents is the biggest. There are concerns about, you know, how much I'm getting along with my peers or with my teachers or difficulties learning or worry about the future. Those things come and go, but always, and we have circles that show you the size, the magnitude of association. That circle for stress around parents is always the biggest which makes absolute clearly makes sense because they're home with their parents all the time. That's one thing. The other thing, Shell, is, so we've seen this drop for kids in, in distress, but among adults, it's the opposite. It's growing over time. The longer all this uncertainty goes, and of course now with all these other disruptions that are happening, the more stress levels are going up. People are saying mental illness is going to be the second wave of COVID. Right. So what what the the for me, the biggest take home message from the student resilience survey, survey is this so far. We are not doing nearly enough, I don't think, to attend to the well-being of the grown-ups. And that is probably the single most pressing thing in terms of our regression equations across school, the well-being of parents. So then the, our task becomes how do we involve them and engage them and support parents and, and reassure them. So oftentimes, what schools are doing is taking the results of their resilience faculty and, and giving parents some reassurance. We're on this. We know we have to be mindful of mental health. Everybody's concerned about this. We're on this and here's what our kids are saying and here's what we're doing about it. So that I think would be the first most important thing. Following that, there's always uh, um, clarity of expectations around uh, uh, academics, um, flexibility, Please give us a break. Don't expect us to do what you did. One hour Zoom sessions is hard to pay attention. Uh, too many assignments, but that they said, I'm sure even pre-COVID, kids always say too many assignments. Uh, staggering of assignments so that not teachers don't get the same, not three teachers on one day. So maybe even by department stagger it. Some schools, that's a bigger issue. So, um, and of course, we break down all our data by grade level and again, by gender, ethnicity, and so on. Another thing will not surprise you, the levels of significant distress go like this to juniors and then down to seniors. Juniors are the ones who are suffering the most. Right. Wow. When you talk about the circle of stress around parents, what are some of those things that allow some of those authentic connections for parents with, with each other and with a school? It's, Michelle, it's basically allowing ourselves to be human with each other. You know, as, as Derek was asking, how do we stop ourselves from wanting to be on the travel team in second grade? I mean, how do we stop ourselves from wanting to seem like we've got it all together? We have to now, it's not an option. It's an imperative that we are able to share our vulnerabilities and hurts with each other. It just has to happen. So what I'm telling people is maybe it was uncomfortable, it was neither customary nor comfortable in the past to be speaking from the heart and saying, my heart is breaking today. My heart is so heavy today. Or I'm in a better place today than I was last week. But we have to. If we don't, our kids will not. 
and we have to set an example for them. We have to show them this is not just okay, but it's actually the strong thing to do. It's also a gift to other people. Think about it, Shah. If you come to me and say, Sonia, I'm hurting, you're giving me the gift of your trust in me, the belief that I have something to offer you. So to help people understand that when you reach out for help, this is not any sign of being a, a wuss or a sissy or a needy or a come on, get it together, whatever. Be embarrassed. And I see all this in the Psych Today blog as well. We have to, the mature, sensitive, kind, generous thing to do is to come together. And the first part of that is the first part of authentic. Be real, be who you are. At this point, we're all hurting. Don't be afraid. In fact, be the one who takes the plunge and says, okay, guys, I just have to say I'm a mess right now. Or this is what I'm worried about. Or I'm so troubled about. This has to go somewhere. We're not all going to be in therapy, are we? But we can do it for each other. The science says we can do it for each other. So we're a pre-K-12 school. So just thinking about the needs of the different age groups. And I know they all have different needs, but I wondered if you have seen in your research, if, if students of, of you know, younger age versus teenagers, if there are more needs in one area over the other or just their needs are different? Excellent question. Once again, back to the data. In all the schools we've been in, some schools will see the, the lower schools are way elevated in terms of the stress and in terms of efficacy of learning. We ask the kids too, how well do you feel you're learning? So the, the middle school kids are higher or the faculty in the lower school are more trouble, being like my kids aren't getting it or I worry about that. In other schools, it's, it's the high school. So I think some of this depends on what's organized within schools. Developmentally, I would say on the distress level, as I said, generally it tends to go up until juniors and then down. The other place where we've seen spikes is K through eight schools is seventh grade. So the year before they're graduating, whether that's seventh grade or 11th grade, that's where you tend to see a lot of spikes and the most anxiety, which all makes sense if you stop and think about it. But that's not necessarily always the case. There are some, this morning we were talking to a school where for whatever reason, the eighth grade kept popping up as being trouble. Now, whether that was a cohort effect about that eighth grade, or was it something about the school and how eighth grade was set up and how much counseling they had? All of this we find by again following over time and saying, yeah, we put these improvements in place and we follow these kids and maybe it is a cohort effect and they're showing some improvement uh, or not. Summary answer, there are developmental shifts. It is harder to keep younger kids engaged in distance learning. A therapist friend of mine was saying, I'm doing therapy with a third grade and she's literally climbing all over the furniture. So it's very hard to keep them engaged. So one can see why the strain on faculty might be greater, right? Among the lower, lower school. At the same time, you can say the upper school faculty are worrying about, are my kids learning what they have to for these AP courses? And what about my poor seniors? And they're gonna graduate and I, my heart is breaking for the fact that I can't, I can't hurt them. Senior, one of the things that I've seen um, in admissions events even, are parents showing up at kindergarten admissions events having an articulating anxiety about student outcomes. And one of the things that you write about is finding ways to ensure that we're not conflating identity and performance. And I, I would love for you just, just to speak to some of that stress that you've talked about from parents is, is really tangible. And when you link that to what kids are experiencing, this idea of that excessive pressure to excel sits at the heart of that. And so what are some ways that we can very thoughtfully think about 
pulling apart identity and performance as two very separate entities. Shall we have a hard reset here, unfortunately. With COVID and the unrest following, we have a hard reset on all our priorities as human beings. So I think as parents, educators, human beings, we're all forced now to say what truly does matter in life. It's a very unfortunate set of events, obviously tragic set of events, but it has forced us to say, is it really that important that my kid gets an A plus or gets an A or a B plus? Is it really that important that it goes to a tier two college as opposed to a tier one? Or that I make, you know, get a raise of $40,000 next year, I publish in the best journals. All of that's important, sure. But ultimately right now, right now our emphasis has to be on mental health. There is no question, we will learn. Those systems are all in place. What's not in place is the attention to mental health. Yeah. And parents are getting that. So the part two to your, to your part two answer to your question is, Shell, as parents are going to get more and more, which they are, distressed, worn thin, at their wit's end, they're going to be looking to you to take care of, as it is, and I wrote a chapter, which I'm, paper I'll share with you last year, on the stresses on teachers and educators in high achieving schools, given the pressures the kids are under, the pressures you are under, and what to do about that. In the field of child development and child development education, there's a, it's, it's not expected that teachers will be supporters of kids' mental health. Think about trauma-informed schools. That this is your job, part of your job now. You've got to do this. So when who takes care of you? Who takes care of how is that going to happen? So parents, I think, are they have to, they don't have a choice. Focus on the fact our children's psychological health is really on the line right now, just given all that's happening. And what is going to distinguish one school from another is going to be genuine attention to the children's well-being, which means genuine attention to the whole community in which the children are ensconced. I was reading a, an article in the NAIS magazine or newsletter uh, say, talking about enrollments in the fall, and he was speaking about what parents want. And this, this person said, things that you should need to consider in talking to parents, what should you convey? Of course, the first thing is, what are we gonna do about COVID and distance and keeping people physically safe? The second thing said was, you need to show what you're doing as a, to be a caring community, to keep your community together. This was before money and scholarships and everything else. This was point number two. Very wise, because that is what is going to set apart one high achieving school from another, saying we get it. Now, as I said, it is not optional. Now it has to be a priority. Our kids are so unsettled. We are so unsettled. We are doing this in a systematic, caring, organized, scientific way, the best way we can, taking care of our community. My colleague Stuart is, is on the call as one of the attendees, and she has a group of 11th grade advisees that meet in her office. So I get to eavesdrop and she has a very loud voice, which is one of the things I love about her. One of the things that I overheard them talking about the day before we moved to distance learning was this question of what if I'm not good at learning in this format? What, is, what does that look like? What if I'm not good at that? And then more recently in some of their virtual meetups, the question has moved to who am I if SATs don't matter? And helping educators have open ears to listen to the heart of what that is and and to be able to support them as they're the world getting turned upside down yeah there are great questions the kids are asking and as you point out they will change over time 
where my area is going to be, so what am I going to do and where are my people? So these things are going to change over time. To respond, this is my gut response to what you're saying, Sha, is that we cannot respond well to them again unless we are comfortable with ourselves. You know, when you say kids feel like my, my self-esteem rests on the splendor of my accomplishments, that has been true for so many of us, myself mm -hmm. included. So I, we have to take a good hard look at ourselves and say, do I feel, this is a phrase that I use in my groups, I feel seen and loved for the person I am at my core. Do I feel that about myself? And I can't feel that if I don't show. You can't be seen if you don't show. Right? So learn, this is a whole new language we're going to have to learn as a society, and it's going to start with us as the grown-ups, being willing to do this ourselves, supporting each other, being gentle and compassionate with ourselves and each other as we're learning these new steps in baby steps, in baby steps, and the kids will learn, will follow our example and saying, it's all right, my love. It's not SATs that define you. You're a decent human being. You're a caring, kind person. That's what we're thinking about, you the human being. Mm -hmm. SATs come and go. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, just the most recent, we are hearing a lot about the masks that our Black colleagues and our Black students and families are wearing, knowing that those same masks are worn by many of our faculty of color, our colleagues of color, our students of color. You say very poignantly, how do we ensure that people are seen and loved for the person I am at my core? And that's a very scary proposition for many of the people who walk into independent schools. And that has to be our work, ensuring that we are seen. It does. And here is, again, something that to me is, I'm sorry, I stammer when I get really troubling is that actually we know that hygiene schools connote risks for adolescents generally and among african-american kids those at hygiene schools are actually doing more poorly than those at lower achieving schools so you think about why is that and there's a colleague of mine last name is asari he's written about it it's in my american psychologist paper uh, most hygiene schools are predominantly white. There are fewer kids of color, fewer black kids, fewer Asian kids, fewer white. So you don't fit in as much, and there is likely a greater sense of being different and being. I'm sorry. A hard topic, you know, and I'm going back to when I'm at school, Shell, you know, and I talk to the kids. I'll give you one example of what this young boy said in the group. I'm talking about what can your school do differently, and how can we help you? He says, I was at a, uh, at a public school. I came to this school because it's so good and I'm on a scholarship for basketball and so on. He says, every single basketball game, they look at me and say, you're gonna get that guy, the black kid, you're gonna get the black kid because I'm the black kid. And they somehow know or assume that. She said, no, nobody means ill. They're in some ways praising me, but every single game I hear. So there are small things like this that, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad people are saying Black Lives Matter and so on, and they're talking about things that are very important, oppression, injustice among people who are low income and don't have, uh, don't have resources, don't have education, don't have support systems. But the tragedy is, and this is not just Black kids, we've seen it among Asian kids too. 
the levels of feeling discriminated against are higher in high achieving schools than in others. So question, what shall we do about this? Listen, that would be my first response is listen. As I listen to that child, I'm running a group now for a bunch of leaders in education. Two of them are African-American and I just asked them, what could those of us who are well-intentioned and well-meaning, what mistakes could we make, be making and what should we be doing to be maximally supportive? And just listen to what they have to say. You can't, I think, and one of the things they did say was, you know, gestures such as putting a black face on Facebook or, you know, putting a yard sign or these things are not really going to cut it, really is listen to us. It's that feel and heard. It's that seen and heard. Listen to us. So much of what you just said requires the self-work. So how am I doing my own self-work, unpacking my, my own sense of self-worth? And well, I'm going to interrupt you if I may and say, don't say self-work, love, because that makes it sound like work. How about <laughs> saying, be gentle with yourself? I mean, words matter. The way you speak to yourself, your inner voice is what you carry around with you. These voices matter. So the moment you say self-work, I say, oh my goodness, no. I, if you say, sweetheart, my love, come on, you can do this. Have a little faith. Reach out. That's way different. And that's where we start. Love that. I love that. So, so spending some time with, with some of that reflection, some of those ways that I'm able to really see what are the things that I'm carrying with me. And how might those differ from the things other people are carrying with them? And in our, in our schools, we find ourselves with so many competing priorities, especially our upper school teachers who are looking at AP classes and how do I make sure students are prepared? And in our lower schools where teachers are tasked with the unbelievable weight of helping people learn how to read and, and to use and form language, that idea of prioritizing this has to be key as we enact our values. What, what advice do you have for us? I really, I just want to sit with you every day before I go to work. And that's my advice. Get your groups going. You know, three weeks ago, after a day of unraveling, I decided, you're not going to get through this. You need your own group. So I reached out to four women, one of whom I've known for 20 years, one of one for a year. Just women, the bottom line, I feel safe with these women. I feel safe, they're kind, they're generous, they won't be judgy. And you know what, I have to tell you one of the first things I said, they all came, four of them, five, five, four of them, it's a five woman group. At the five minutes to the end, I said, um, so with some trepidation, certainly shyness, so what, do you guys want to do this again? And I said, of course we do. And I told them a story as a kid, we moved a lot and I didn't really have a lot of people over. And for some reason, my mother got into a head to throw a party for me as second grade or third grade, and nobody came. And that's, I said, my, that's one of my things. My greatest fear was I would invite you, and nobody said, what, who wants to do that? And the moment I told them that, I said, of course, we want to be at your party. And they were at my party, and they still are. That, that is beautiful. And, and finding the ways to really create that for ourselves and the vulnerability that that, that that required. You know, we look at vulnerability and trust and trust has been a, a lot of our conversation in recent days about 
what are the ways that we are deliberately doing trust building and deliberately doing um, finding those places that are that are breaking trust and looking at those and vulnerability has has really seemed key in there as well as doing doing what you say you're going to do so when you start to think through this idea of are you seen and loved for the person that you are at your core the vulnerability is connected to that how do we create those spaces that that allow students to experience that and and our colleagues to experience that well what you're doing with me here is a start is it not just the fact that we're having this conversation and i have been as open with you as i have been so that's a start I, I, somebody floated this idea to me the other day she says why don't you help bunches of educators like school leaders start their own groups maybe be there for the first two get them rolling and then go on to the next. And I, I think I'm playing with that idea now to just get people off the ground. How I'm going to manage this? Summertime's coming, and I'm doing a couple already, anyhow. So, but, uh, and then people who have an affinity for this, who've done this kind of thing before, maybe they'll volunteer and say, "Yeah, I have, I have some ideas." There, as I said, there are that little primer there sets out rules for you how to start, how to do this, a general set of guidelines. Beyond that, if you know. I mean, I'm here. Well, you know I won't hesitate to email you. So. <laughs> Sunya, we don't have much time left together, but earlier today, you and I turned our attention to politics, and we have an election ahead of us. We lived through the last election in classrooms and had to sustain the, the turbulence and the damage to relationships that that experience caused in, in faculty ranks, um, between students and faculty, and we, we look forward with, with great trepidation and concern about how we can help provide a space of civil discourse that is supportive and lends itself to understanding. What, what suggestions would you have for us? Well, I'll start with what I always start with, use the data, find out what's on people's minds. Even just people saying, I've expressed myself helps. So let's start with that. Beyond that, I think just second point, which you'll hear me saying over and over again, be authentic, you know, and be respectful at the same time. Sometimes that's hard. There are unfortunately differences happening within families now on the same side. You know, should you protest or should you not? You're spreading COVID, stay home. You're being irresponsible by not supporting the cause. So even within families on the same side or friends on the same, same team, there are differences. All to say two things, be real, give your point of view, but very importantly, don't do that if either party is in a place of distress or exhausted or depressed because it's gonna go nowhere. In fact, it'll go someplace bad. So if it's a close relationship or not, if your students, if you're in each other's lives inextricably, unavoidably, you're stuck with each other and something horrible has happened, like an election that you're not happy with, right? You have to talk about knowledge. We have differences of opinion. And if it's too hard a topic to discuss, we're not going to talk about it. We'll just acknowledge that it's there and leave it alone. If we're not, if we're feeling too raw, as many of us are right now, to get into the depths of it. Just say it's there. I don't know that I have the strength to delve into it right now, maybe tomorrow. But always keep acknowledging we're aware of this is not some big fat elephant sitting in the room that we're going to pretend is not there. Yes. 
Yes, and I, and I would say that experience of being in the class of 18 students and listening, the things that will come out of the mouths of students, figuring out how to manage that conversation, I know weighs on the shoulders of educators because we become trapped in our own sense of perfection because we don't want to mess it up. We don't want to well, do it wrong. Once again, see all my principles come back to each other. Once again, I say, I wrote this paper called Who Mothers Mommy, right? So of course you're confused. Parents are confused and you're confused. This is a confusing thing to have students debating this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You do your best based on your values and judgment and sense of balance, and then you go to your go-to people, which is your group. I call them in authentic connections, your go-to people whom you de designate, like my group, my go-to people. You go to them and say, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I did, here's what I'm planning to do, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And they will be gentle with you and say, you're, up, you're taking a chance here, maybe not now, or maybe not that way, or great, go for it, we're here to support you, mm -hmm. or anything in between. None of us can do this alone. That's the first thing. Anything that is delicate of any kind, and right now everything's delicate. So let's just make this our first order of business. We had a, a teacher who's on the call said she so appreciated your wise words about that support group and finding some enduring circles within their faculty um, becomes so crucial. And so I know she appreciated that and, and asked some questions about teaching schedules and might there be a way to find a dedicated time that allows that to happen? And so again, some of those technical things that in my role are things that I can think about how to put in place. In our, in our last few minutes together, I wonder if you could just tell us what, what would be your greatest wish for us as we, as we dive into summertime, a time where we have this moment of, of reflection, of stillness, of, of quiet, after a very, very loud and extremely busy spring, what, what would be your, your parting wish for us? Make a genuine commitment to authentic connections and follow through on it. Be there. The, the other phrase we use in our groups is a blanket of love. And there are school campuses where this has become a word that the students use, a blanket of love. They're not shy about it. And these are your hard-nosed students who are top A performers and hard-nosed faculty and hard-nosed everybody. And they're using a phrase like blanket of love. So that's my wish for you. Let's bring some of that gentleness and kindness and make that a fabric of our everyday lives. Wow, I love that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was a tremendous gift to us and we really appreciated, even in the face of your exhaustion, making time to lift us up. Great big hug to all of you. Hang in there.